Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 8, Episode 9. Today, I'm so very happy to have Ed Kimber on the show. Ed is a food writer, baker, six-time cookbook author, and winner of The Great British Bake Off, the very first season in 2010. Ed's newest book, Small Batch Bakes, is out as of this last week. I really loved recording this episode with Ed, and he was a joy to talk to. I kept thinking as I was talking to him, God, this guy should be in government or some kind of you know office. He speaks so well. He's so eloquent when he talks. I could just see him totally being a politician. He was so fun, charming, and giving. I'm just pleased as punch to be delivering this episode to you. If you get a chance, you really got to purchase Small Batch Bakes. It's a phenomenal book and full of clever, inventive, wonderful recipes. I, I know I say that a lot, and I do get that I really repeat that um, every time I talk to you, but I'm kind of really going to push this one a little extra because it's just so clever. The taste profiles in here are amazing. Uh, the different grains and things and different flavors he's using, it's just really, really phenomenal, and I really can't recommend it enough. And it just um, really gives you something to think about if you're so used to regular amounts in cookbooks and you want to bake a different amount of stuff, it's really worth looking at uh, to look at the science behind the cooking and the recipes, as well as just the the food that he makes in general. I really got to recommend it to you. You can get it at wherever um, quality cookbooks are sold. Go to your nearest uh, bookstore that sells cookbooks. I'm sure they'll have a copy of it. I'm going to go to the episode now. Without further ado, my conversation with Ed Kimber. Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I'm proud to have Ed Kimber on the show. Ed is a food writer, baker, six-time cookbook author, and winner of the Great British Bake Off, its first season in 2010. Ed's newest book, Small Batch Bakes, is out as of this last week. Ed, thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, I talk to many of the people that are on the show, and I always ask them this one question that I think is kind of central to everybody mostly. Um, and did you kind of start off baking when you were young? Did you have a relative instruct you? Uh, where did the first focal point of baking start with you? I have a kind of cliche start to my baking, especially as someone who writes cookbooks. I think, you know, some people have really fascinating stories about changing their career halfway through their life after doing something else. But I started baking with my mother and my grandmother. <laughs> so it was definitely, um, it, it was never a kind of hobby per se it was more of a it was just part of our family um my family's quite traditional and uh, there would always be certain things at certain times so there was always christmas baking there was always a kind of an apple crumble at weekends after a sunday roast and so baking was just something i kind of helped out doing as a kid um but it wasn't really until i had left university and was kind of struggling to find my place in the world where baking became more than that to me. Uh, I was in a job that I truly despised and was stressful and I was not happy. And so baking became a kind of outlet, a stress relief. And from there, I kind of had made some decisions before the show that I should be doing something with my life that makes me happy. And at the time, baking was that solitary thing that I could imagine doing as a job for the rest of my life and would make me happy. You mentioned crumbles. Were there any other items that you have fond memories of making with your mother and grandmother? Um, so my grandmother didn't do actually a lot of baking. Uh, the one thing we used to make with her regularly was a very basic bread. Um, and it was just these small white kind of floured rolls. And it was one of those things we made when it was just me and my brother and my grandparents, and we were kind of left with them for the day. Um, and it was a good activity, I think, in their minds, because it kept us busy for quite a while. Um, but there's a very strong sense memory that I have, and it's the smell of that type of bread. It's it's not something you really get in bakeries because it's not really a, you know, quote unquote, quality bread. So it's got a very strong yeasty smell. It's kind of very flowery, but that smell when I do occasionally smell it really brings me back to that kitchen with my grandparents. With my mum, there was lots and lots of things. There was Christmas cake every year. There was, I mean, my first memory I think is probably 
making mince pies with my mom and for those who are not british mince pie is a a sweet thing it's not actually minced meat although back in the day a long long time ago it would have had some meat in it and um, but basically it's a a sweet kind of mix of dried fruit and candy peel and alcohol and apple and all these delicious things and it's kind of made into this a syrupy mixture and it's baked inside small sweet pastry tarts and it's a classic Christmas thing so it's just kind of very traditional things it wasn't necessarily new or inventive or anything around that it was just really kind of honest British baking um, which is why I think it probably never felt like a um, a hobby for us it was just we're making the kind of classics and it kind of fits into our lifestyle I think my family plus my mum's family when she was growing up baking was just part of the regular routine so it wasn't seen as special per se it was it was just kind of part of our life and obviously looking back it was very special to have that all those homemade things but um yeah it was a very uh constant in my life you won the great british bake-off in 2010 and i always like that i've had other people on the program who were on it how did you go from just i mean was there ads out about it like how did you find out about it to apply for it so back in the in, in the first season, obviously there was uh, no show to watch, so there was no TV advertising, there was no idea of what the show would be, um, and I only found out about it because someone had seen a very small uh, advert in the, there's a, an organisation in the UK called the Women's Institute, which is basically a a, a wartime organisation where women would come together to kind of learn how to make things like jams and jellies and pies and scones. And it was a kind of communal um, society, but also um, to kind of help you make things when there was less around. And it was a very, very um, traditional organization. And obviously I was not a member and I didn't read their magazine, but someone who knew me did read the magazine and that was the only place they'd seen this advert asking for people to apply so uh yeah it was a unusual thing for me to do because i was very shy um i had quite low confidence at the time and it took a couple of friends of mine a long time to convince me to do the show and in the end i only applied for the show thinking i would get to see an audition and I really like TV as a format, and I thought it would be interesting to kind of see behind the scenes almost. Um, and people don't believe me when I say it, but I never thought I, every stage I got to in the show itself, but also in the audition process, I was never expecting to go further than that. I was always expecting it to be just that one thing. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that I actually did well on the show is I never looked forward. I was always concentrating on the moment. Um, but yeah, for me, auditioning was kind of, it, it was a stab in the dark almost. It was, I don't think I had much hope of it turning into anything. Um, but I remember being so kind of stuck in my world that I thought doing something like that might at least inspire me to make some changes. Was there any part of the competition where they announced what the, uh, item was to be made and you just thought oh no was there any <laughs> not really no I before the show had happened I um had basically I applied to go to Cajun College three years prior and was rejected for some reason I still don't know why really um and so I'd set myself a kind of task of baking as much as I could, uh, as often as I could. And it was always to learn something. So I bought so many cookbooks, so many kind of professional instruction cookbooks, which were more like textbooks. And I would bake something from them almost every day, every other day, just to learn a technique of labor or something different. And so by the time the show came around, I would say one of my strengths was that my knowledge level was really high. Um, and so nothing really daunted me, but also you have to remember the show back then was very different. It was really about baking. It wasn't about decoration. It wasn't about over the top challenges. It really was meant to celebrate home baking. And so the challenges weren't as kind of ridiculously complicated as they are these days. And um, they were a lot more kind of true, honest baking. So um, I think as long as you had a good foundation in 
general baking, whether that be bread or dessert or cakes or, or whatever, you were fairly okay because you should be able to kind of muddle your way through. Now they've come up with recipes that no one's ever heard of or recipes that are so um, from such a tiny region or, you know, one person's grandmother made it 20 years ago and now it's a thing. And it's a, it, it's a very different thing for me. So thankfully I was on a, a season where um, the baking was really about honest kind of home baking, which is what I liked at the time. Now, you said that before the show, you're rather shy. And mm-hmm. I, talking to you now, you're so well-spoken. I mean, you, you really speak well. And um, I've read you in interviews. I've heard you on other podcasts. And you, you're, you know, you're a very good speaker. And your writing is amazing. How, how is this like for you, you know, to be the shy person, do this show, and then suddenly <laughs> you're a celebrity? How was that? Um, it was very, yeah, it was difficult. Um, I remember filming the show and having very clear thoughts of what have I got myself into um having real issues with kind of crises of confidence and worrying about how I would come across and whether I would be too uh to be honest too gay or flamboyant because I was out but being on tv in that kind of way was a very different situation for me back then and we would in the tent and we were baking but we weren't filming at the time and what people don't realize is that you know the challenges are hours and hours long they're not filming the whole time there are big chunks of that time where they just leave you to it but sometimes the presenters would come and have a chat and just like be social and I remember having a conversation with um Sue Perkins who was the um one of the presenters at the time I love and her we, yeah she's a brilliant and I think she's a huge part of why the show is so successful um, her comedy is brilliant and she's just she had the right levity to the show and her and um, her Mel really kind of created the DNA of the show, I think, really. But we were having this conversation about confidence and we were just chatting and I was saying how kind of I was this shy person with really low confidence and uh, she basically said, stop it. This is the time for you to kick that away because you know, this is an opportunity for you to make changes that you want to make and to, you know, move forward in your life. And so I had that in my head. And then I was, I I basically decided very soon after the show had finished, but before it aired, that I was going to move to London. And by the time the show finished airing, I think it was two months later, I had left my job and I had moved to London and I had no money, (laughs) but I had set myself a goal and the goal was if by the end of the year I'm paying my uh, rent and I'm happy then I'll keep doing what I'm doing and I find myself very lucky because I fell into writing especially writing for magazines very early on in that period and that gave me an entrance into the world of food where I could actually find myself much better I think if I had been thrust into, you know, major TV roles back in the day, I would have really struggled. But I was able to kind of find my niche in a world where using my, I never call it celebrity because <laughs> I'm just a boy from Bradford who definitely not a celebrity, but my kind of, uh, the leg up the show gave me enabled me to kind of follow a path that would never have been possible before. So I used that to find that niche of writing and writing cookbooks. And then I would use TV to kind of add alongside that. So it's never been my main aim. But what it did do is it gave me a career that I really enjoyed and was surrounded by people that I really loved working with. And that really helped to bring my confidence. And I think had I have done the show years later when you would have been thrust into a much much bigger spotlight and in a sense of celebrity that was very different to what I was doing I don't think I would have even applied because it's not something I was interested in I the only aim I had from doing the show was to try and somehow make baking into a career and the show gave me you know an audience and a platform and an ability to try lots of different things and to find what way I wanted to do that. So 
Um, I think just through that process, I gained a lot more confidence because I found a niche that really suited me and um, people seemed to enjoy. So it definitely helped with that for sure. Now you went on to make a lot of TV, regular TV appearances Mm -hmm. um, like Sunday Brunch, Saturday Kitchen, Good Morning America, and as the resident baker on the Alan Titmar show. Now, I wanted to kind of delve back into what we were just talking about. So you, you started thinking, I'm going to make this. And I know that you at that time probably got a contract for your first book, one of the first of the six mm-hmm. that you've done so far. What is that process like? Because for many people, you know, you get a job, you're a fireman, you're a doctor, it's all kind of plug and play. Mm-hmm. But for you, you're kind of building the ship as you're sailing it mm-hmm. in many ways. What yeah. was this like for you at the time? The early days were interesting because... I literally had no idea what I was doing, like no idea whatsoever. And I would basically stumble into things and then kind of try and make it work. So one of the things that uh, happened early on was I'd moved to London and I basically had, you know, no money and I was just like saying yes to things. So where I was living at the time happened to be very near a TV studio that did a lot of food. And that was pure coincidence because the apartment was all I could afford and I had no idea they were just around the corner. Um, (laughs) But because of that, I I did a few shows with them just as guest appearances. And when I was doing one of those shows, um, I there was kind of an audience of members of the public and it was just a few people and they would come and sit kind of in the kitchen and it was like a, almost like a morning show style chatty segment and the idea was that they were there as the members of the public to try food and give their opinion but I was very naive and didn't realize that those people were not members of the public they were kind of agents of people or the makeup artists or you know just people who happened to be around and so I was chatting to one of the 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 people this guy and he just asked kind of have you ever thought about writing a book and I was oh yeah 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 you know I would love to not really ever expecting that to actually happen um and he said oh well I'm an agent and I had no agency or management or anything at the time and you know if you if you're serious about it let's have a chat and you know we can help you make that happen and so I signed with them very quickly afterwards and I think within the space of two months I'd signed that first book deal so I think within the space of I think it was just after I moved to London, like very soon after that I had my first book deal. Um, And that really helped kind of give me a little bit of breathing room um, because it meant I could work on the book and uh, kind of explore other options at the same time. And for that first probably two, three years, I was saying yes to experiences and jobs and just different things. And somehow they would lead to different bits of work and I would kind of slot it all together and eventually it started to form more of a solid plan um but really my guiding light has always been I do this job because I love it not because I just want to make a living so I've always said that I will keep doing it as long as I'm really enjoying it because I'm sure I could earn more money doing something else but I really enjoy the job and it gives me freedom to explore things that I really enjoy and I work for myself, which I most of the time I really love. It has a lot of stresses, but <laughs> I really like the freedom of it. So, um, yeah, as long as I'm happy, I kind of keep plugging on. I, I like to think I've got more of a plan now than I did back in those days, though. <laughs> you talked about the early offer to write cookbooks. And we you began with The Boy Who Bakes in 2011, which was just a year after you mm-hmm. did The Great British Bake Off. And Say It With Cake was in, right after in 2012. Now I've talked to people on the program before who write cookbooks and the process of cookbooks. It's kind of like, you know, having a baby in many ways. It's like you're giving birth. You're just like, you're, you're plugging along. You're doing all this work. Then you're doing promotional work. And you had two books back to back. What was this like for you as a new author? Um, the first one especially was obviously a learning experience because I'd never done it before. Um, I learned very early on that writing books is quite solitary and it can have elements of loneliness because you are spending a huge amount of time just in the kitchen on a computer. And I do kind of like that element. There is a a part of me that does really enjoy just kind of working on something 
really hard on my own and then kind of slowly revealing it to the world, either through the photo shoot process and then through the kind of design process and then teasing it out as we come to release it and then kind of the actual final reveal of it. Um, but the first one, I would say I learned through many mistakes and that's not necessarily in the content. I love that first book. Um, sadly, it, it is out of print, but I, I love the recipes in that book. And there are recipes in there that get made constantly. I see people making them all the time. And the book is 12, you know, 11 years old. So um, I'm incredibly proud of it. But the behind the scenes process, I think I learned so much in such a short amount of time from the people I wanted to work with um, on certain aspects of the book in terms of like photography and styling to how I like to work with a group of creative people. Um, and I remember we, we had so many conversations on those shoots about authors who never turn up to shoots or authors who just kind of hand everything over and don't even write their own work. And that first book really gave me the experience to kind of go, this is how I want to work. I want to do all of the writing myself. I don't want to have anyone ghostwriting for me. And I've never, never included a recipe that I haven't uh, worked on completely. No one ever works on my, my recipes. Um, and I wanted to have this really joyful collaborative experience with the photo shoots. And they have always been such an amazing experience for me. Um, I also learned tons about promotion because promotion for cookbooks is very strange and old fashioned and difficult <laughs> and hard to do. Um, and I would say that on the first one, I kind of stumbled through it and I was really happy because the pro the, the product at the end of it, I love. Um, and then I think with the second one, I think my naivety shone through more in the second one in that I was kind of swept along the process and it wasn't truly the book I would have wanted to have written. And it kind of was, the whole process is just much more stressful for the second one. So um, that also taught me that the kind of opposite lessons. And so with, with those two books together, I really learned how to kind of stand my ground and push for what I really believed in and not do things that I didn't strongly, strongly believe in. And so over the years, I've been offered um, book deals for books that I do not want to write. And the reason I say no to them is that I don't think they fit with me. Plus, I don't believe in the concept necessarily. And I don't want to put out work that I don't 100% stand behind. So they were definitely big, big learning curves in that early process. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. You write um, in a very distinct voice. In talking to you now, I really realize that you write as you talk as far as mm -hmm. I perceive, which I think is just a really very clever way to go because you engage the reader and you kind of oftentimes you're telling stories you're giving mm -hmm. background but it's not too much it's a very wonderful you're conversational yet also minimalist in some degree mm -hmm. writing style and also i think I, I i feel like just reading your work that your trademark that you developed is wow flavors like you really like kind of known for your flavors because you have some recipes in here that you know, it may be something people have made before, but this mm -hmm. version is going to be the one that's going to make people sit up and take notice. Was that a conscious effort with you? Yes, I think so. So when I approach a book pro um, process, um, because it is a bigger product, my starting point is that everybody should be able to buy this book and bake from it. And so very consciously, I put in very easy recipes that anybody can make, but I also put in recipes that are slightly harder slightly more involved so that wherever you are kind of on the experience spectrum, you will be able to pick up the book, bake from it and have that book live with you for many years. You know, books aren't necessarily the cheapest thing. And what I want to do is write a book that is useful and that can live with you and you will find it interesting for years to come. So every book has easy things and every book has slightly more difficult things. Um, in terms of flavor and kind of recipe style, 
I love to play with nostalgia. So a lot of the kind of forms of my recipes are often things you may understand by reading them. But then as you start to make them, you realize either the method has been updated or adapted to make it better. Or in most cases, I've layered in extra flavor to make it something a little bit more special than what you might have remembered. So it gives you the nostalgia, but it gives you a flavor that is more appropriate either for today or, you know, it's just, it's not the same thing because sometimes I think when you try and replicate something from childhood, for example, it's never going to beat that childhood memory because the childhood memory isn't necessarily real. And so adding an extra flavor, making it something a little bit more grown up or making it something a little bit more unusual gives you the nostalgia without it replacing that original idea. It's something new. Um, so I do like to play with that, but also I think flavor is just the most interesting part of the job really. So, you know, I literally carry a notebook with me all most of the time now, it's just my phone. And every time I'm traveling or I'm literally just going to the shops, I will be constantly writing down things that spark into my mind because I've seen something. So I'm currently in um, Seattle and, you know, every bakery I pop into, I might try something that I'm like, oh, that flavor is really good and it would go really well with this. Or, you know, I sometimes will literally try and go, oh, I loved this this recipe so much from X bakery that this is my version because I loved it so much and I want to share it with you because you won't be able to get there as easily maybe. Um, or maybe it's across the world and, you know, you may not travel there. And so that kind of excitement over flavor is the thing that kind of keeps me going, I think. I really love what you did with the new cookbook, Small Batch Bakes, because for me, it was a godsend baking wise, because it really, <laughs> so many cookbooks you're really making for like the army. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, I like, I could bake, I have a smaller workforce. I could bring like specifically the uh, rose, pistachio and raspberry cake i could bring that in and they'd be talking mm -hmm. about it for days but yet it wouldn't it would be enough for everybody not yeah. too much and i really like what you've done with some of the flavor profiles in here um i'm just i love so much of it because like just the the mini tart tatins are so genius i'm probably not pronouncing that right the brown butter maple tarts just were amazing too because i grew up with chess pie and it was always kind of okay mm -hmm. but this really takes it another level the one thing I noticed, though, and it was really I thought was kind of got me to stop in my tracks was what you're doing with rye flour in here is just really amazing. Were these all things that you kind of like were making notes, as you say, as you're going through to make the, Were you thinking of these things when you thought of the book? So not necessarily. When I pitch a book, it's always idea first. And that's mainly because publishers around the world really are obviously very nervous about books not selling as well these days and they like books to have very obvious hooks so the idea always has to come first um, but then the thing I really like is once the idea has been agreed upon I'm really at liberty to just fill in those uh, blanks with basically whatever I think is really good and my editors are relatively hands-off apart from if they think there's too much of one thing the balance isn't quite right but generally, after doing it for six times, I'm almost left completely alone just to get those ideas down. And so the way I work is often uh, I will sketch out the chapters so I know kind of uh, what's going in the chapters. But then I need to kind of fill in what the recipes will be. And that can be from format. So sometimes I will go, I'd really like an old fashioned donut or... I'd really like a loaf cake here or whatever. But then more often than not, actually what happens is it's a marriage of a format and a flavor and kind of finding the two that match each other. So often I will be at a restaurant or a bakery and I'll have some flavor combo. And I'm, I just love the combo of flavors, but it's not necessarily the format I want to use it in. So then I kind of will go through my list of things that I think would be great in the book. And I kind of marry the two together. Um, sometimes it's more of a case of, you know, I find a format and I think, oh, rye flour would be great in this. And then I find a pairing flavor. So it kind of works in a few different ways. Um, but when the, the main thing I do is I have to sketch out the formats for the book so that the book has variety, has interest, has different skill levels. And then I come up with a whole list of kind of flavor ideas and marry the two together. 
but it's the same thing. The flavors have to be a mix of things that people will just go to automatically because they're, you know, familiar or they are things people will really gravitate towards because they've got things like caramel in them or, you know, things that are really unctuous and delicious and people will just naturally make. And then there is the things that are slightly more esoteric or combinations people might not have had before. And I like to include those because I like to make things that people will find really interesting and delicious and may not have experienced before. Um, But yeah, things like rye is one of my... I call it a kind of, it's like a little flavor bomb because it's a real enhancer of flavors. Um, it's A, it's delicious on its own, but if yeah. you add rye to chocolate, it really intensifies the flavor. It kind of adds this slight tang to things because it can have a little bit of sourness. And so it can really elevate flavors, but it goes so well with berries. It goes well with chocolate. It goes well with so many things, but that's one of the reasons I really like using alternative or what we call ancient grains but yeah. the problem with cookbooks is access is a problem yeah so in the uk for example it's very easy to get buckwheat and rye in the supermarket those are two that you'll find in most large supermarkets right. but things like um einkorn for example you might find in very specialist shops yeah. so i like to push it as much as i can in books but also knowing that the things have to be available to buy. I don't like using ingredients you can't find in supermarkets because most people buying the book are buying their ingredients from a supermarket. And so I do tailor them slightly for um, a supermarket buyer. As much as I like to kind of educate and push people to try different things, my main aim is for people to actually make the thing and enjoy it. So if you look at my kind of online recipes, you'll see that sometimes I will use more esoteric or hard to find ingredients because you're not paying for that recipe necessarily. So I feel happier using kind of harder to find ingredients. But as time goes on, like in my first book, I probably wouldn't have been able to use rye flour or buckwheat flour. And as time goes on, you know, I'm able to use those more and more because they're easier to get. The peach sour cream uh, cake was my, crumb cake was my family's favorite uh, so far of the book. I'll be making lots more things uh, for them, but they're very thankful for that. <laughs> I know you had a, quite a hit with the emergency chocolate chip cookie. Can we talk about that? Have you had a lot of feedback on that one so far? Yes, <laughs> that is the <laughs> the recipe that has been made most times. It has been published most times. Um, it is definitely the recipe that has got people's attention. And I'll be completely honest with you, that was on purpose. That was the first recipe idea I came up with for the book because I thought it would really grab people's attention. It would sell them the idea of what the book is. Um, In the US, small batch baking is already quite a big trend, but in the UK, it's not quite there yet. So my publishers are a little nervous about people understanding the book, but I wasn't too worried about that, but I wanted to include a recipe that really you know, really sold the idea. And so it was all meant to be about telling you that small batch baking has a place in your life and really is a useful thing because you mentioned earlier about how baking books are often to serve like an army. And that was kind of the sole purpose of the book is that every other baking book makes 25 cookies, 30 cookies, whatever. But there's almost no books that serve the small batch format and I've had a few people kind of say oh what is the point of a single cookie I'm never going to eat that and that's fine but that just means the book's not necessarily for you but the amount of people that I've said oh my god this is such a godsend this is a such a useful book in our lifestyle you know whilst I've been on on my book tour in the US I've had so many people come up to me and say oh guess what my kids have moved out of the house and I don't bake anymore but I really miss it and it's just me and my husband and this is so great and then you've got people who you know live alone and they might have an amazingly busy social life but occasionally you want to bake something at home because you want it right then yeah and so this fits into that but it also fits into things like there's recipes that I say are for date night because they just serve two like there's an amazing creme brulee dessert that is literally just for two and it's served in one uh dish that is perfect for a day or there's a pizza dough recipe that makes just two pizzas and so I think the more you think about it the more you realize that actually baking can 
be much more of a, a special, not just a special occasion thing, but it can be part of um, a more frequent, regular um, part of our lives. But so many people have told me that they're used to half recipes, quarter recipes, and they're thrilled that there's a book that's actually designed for these moments. And so, um, yeah, I think it's been a really great uh, thing to see people enjoying the book, but that recipe specifically has really captured people's imagination. I see every every day I wake up in the US at the moment, I'm seeing people in the UK who've made it. And when I'm back home, every time I wake up, I see people the day before have made it in the US. It's, it's a daily thing that I'm seeing people make it. So um, yeah, it's a really wonderful thing to see. I really liked, um, I know I say this a lot on this podcast, so people are be kind of groaning for me, but like, <laughs> I really love, I get into the production design of cookbooks a lot. And mm -hmm. I really love, especially recently, I love with what a lot of the publishers are doing. I really love, so on the um, easy 110 Easy Bakes and 110 Bakes, and then this book, I really loved what you're doing with the production quality. And um, mm -hmm. specifically in this one too, the photographs are good, but like, I want to, very be very specific it wasn't just the photographs but it was the way the food was placed like if we talk touch on the uh, pistachio rose raspberry mm -hmm. cake you made the decision of quartering it showing the slices which i thought was ingenious because i think if i would have saw it just in the tin i'd be like oh that looks good and maybe thought about mm -hmm. it but seeing the cut slices made me think wow that's pretty damn impressive and I think you did that with a few of the others too. Like the muffins were kind of out yeah. and it really gave you an idea of, you kind of get hungry. Cause you're like, wow, I want to eat that. Was that, were you part of that? Like, what, did you have some hand in that when you were doing the photos? So for the last three books, they were all pandemic books basically. Yeah. And because of that, um, there was a decision to make about how we shoot the book. And my publisher said to me for the first of that series, Wonton Bakes, which actually started before the pandemic and came out during the pandemic. Yeah. But they offered me the opportunity to shoot that book myself. And I said that I, because they'd known that I'd been shooting more and more for other people and had been wanting to make photography more of my career. And so they said, do you want to shoot this one? Um, you know, we, we've done three books with you. We have confidence in you. We think, you know, you can do it. So I jumped at the opportunity. And so I've shot all three of these recent books. So I was very deliberate with this book, um, specifically about showing portion sizes. And part of that was to help send, uh, sell the idea of small batch baking. So when you say that um, pistachio cake, I think if you'd seen it in the tin, it's hard to judge from a picture the size of yeah. it. And you might just go, oh, that looks like a big cake. But when you cut it into slices, it kind of, helps sell you the idea um but in terms of kind of like the the mess or the deliciousness when i food styled for 10 years you know i started just because i was on set for my recipes and magazines and then i slowly started doing more and more to the point that i was working as a food stylist for other people and one of the things i learned very 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 early on is that mess equals flavor yeah um, and if you can make something look a little bit messy in a natural way um, and that's the hard part is making it look very natural. That's when things look really delicious. So that's so true. Cause like when I was looking at that, when I, when I saw the rye, um, crumble, mm -hmm. if you would just put it in the pan, I'd be like, uh, yeah, but you had kind of dug yeah. into it. And that was when I thought, oh, I want that. Yeah. And the brulee too, like you would kind of crack the sugar mm -hmm. crust, which really did it for me. And the pizzas even like, I'm fine. I'm like, I see that I can mm -hmm. see it. I can conceptualize it. And you really made it. You kind of push it past that point. I'm I'm really impressed to hear that you took the photographs. I didn't mm -hmm. expect that, to be honest with you. I didn't read that, I guess, in the book. Did you have to set up a whole studio to do this? Because these are not, I mean, I want to tell, I'm not giving faint praise to the people <laughs> who are listening to this. These are pretty fucking good <laughs> photographs. So like, you. did you have to set up a whole studio in your house? So the process is slightly different to when I work with a team. So the first three books, I did it in a much more traditional way where there was a photographer, food stylist, prop stylist, all those things. For these three books, I've done everything. So I shot the food, wow. I obviously made the food and I did the styling of props and, and, and uh, the food. So it was thankfully a different process because I didn't have to shoot them all in one go because it was completely up to me. It was my schedule. So as long as I was delivering those images 
by the time that I needed to. It didn't matter if I shot them in a three-week process all in one go. And actually, it was harder for me to do it that way because I was doing it on my own. So I would shoot as I went along. So what I would do is I would make a recipe. I would test it a few times. And on the last time when I was really happy, I would then have a setup ready and I would shoot it. So it was it was a kind of very long, slow process, but made more efficient because I wasn't then spending an extra month at the end of the book process reshooting everything. Oh, and it yeah. also, I also think it means that the food looks its most delicious because it's not messed with too much. I don't like overstyling. I don't like where things feel very forced and placed. So even though there's a lot of work that goes into it, I try and make it as organic feeling as possible. And I do think actually working in this very slow, you know, shooting one or two recipes a day over, you know, six months, seven months, eight months actually meant that it felt much more real and the images don't feel too staged, which is a real important thing for me. I get the feeling reading these books that you not only like food writing, but you also love books and cookbooks. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) My partner, um, is very aware that we have no space left in our small apartment. And so <laughs> books get snuck in. Um, I'm very lucky that um, publishers send me a lot of books. Um, and so, you know, on the occasion that a book hasn't been sent to me and I buy it, I sometimes go, you know, well, this book that was sent to me. <laughs> um, but we are hopefully in the process of uh, moving in the next year or two to somewhere bigger. And one of the joys for me is that I will be able to have more book space because <laughs> at the moment I have boxes in the attic. I have uh, books under the bed. They're all over the place, but I, I know what you're talking about. To, <laughs> yeah, I think when it comes to baking books, I'm kind of an avid collector. So I'm trying very hard not to bring back many on this book tour because I'm already over my weight limit for my luggage. Um, but oh, there no. is a few that I would like to pick up. So you never know. Yeah, that's going to be a problem when you go to Omnivore Books. I know. I've been to Omnivore a few times um, <laughs> and I'm at the book larder in Seattle tonight. So, oh, ouch. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have to email them both and say, don't let me buy any books. <laughs> These were given to me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, do you have any cookbook authors that you like to read that are some of your favorites? I know that's a hard question. So it is a hard question because I'm really lucky that I kind of, I say fell into because that's how it started, but I'm very lucky that I feel part of a baking cookbook kind of community almost. So there are people that I used to love to read that are now my friends. And that's, you know, people like Dory Greenspan and David Leibovitz. And I have to say Dory specifically, I can't tell people, and I don't think I'll ever bore of telling people how amazing Dory is. I think she is like, I think she's, she feels like a mentor to so many people that I have endless respect and time for her. Um, And, you know, I've had dinner with her in her house and she is just, just the warmest of people. So I will always cherish uh, her books. I remember telling her once that actually the first book of hers I bought was not any of the big well-known books. It was her book called Paris Suites. And it's a much smaller book for Dory. Like Dory writes these massive books, yes. but this book is tiny and they're not really her recipes. They're recipes from bakers and chefs and pastry chefs throughout Paris. And there's no photography, it's all hand drawing. Um, but I think it's a really strong example of how good her writing is because I have said this to her before that it really transports me back to France completely and it just gives me such a joyful you know experience of being um, in that place through that book so I think that's a really good example of the kind of writing that I'd like in terms of a place But I would say in terms of flavor, for example, Claudia Fleming is a huge inspiration. Um, A friend of mine introduced me to her work many, many, many years ago. And I don't know if she actually had a copy of of the book, Um, but she definitely had a few photocopies of the ginger cake that's in that book. And it's just a fabulous recipe. And so a few years later, an ex-partner of mine bought me a copy of that book and at the time it was out of print and cost a lot of money (laughs) it was you know hundreds of pounds to buy that book and 
it's a very cherished book because I think people don't necessarily understand, especially the public, how influential Claudia Fleming is. When you read that book, and it has been out for I don't know how many years, you can see the flavor combinations she uses appearing in restaurants all over the world. You can see people being inspired by her recipes and using them in their restaurants all over the world. And I think it's just a really special book that talks about flavor in a way that excites me, but also inspires me so much. So I would say for someone I don't know, I would say Claudia Fleming is uh, a a very special author. Um, I want to ask you, um, I know that you just completed, you know, you're just doing a book tour now. Mm -hmm. So I'm always guilty about asking this question, but (laughs) I want to just ask it anyway. What's next for you? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> um, I had a very conscious break. Um, I wrote three books back to back with no break. And by the time uh, Small Batch Bakes was finished, I felt exhausted and uh, almost kind of, yeah, I, I was just very uninspired by the time it finished. And that's not because, uh, like the book, I love, love, love the book but writing three books in three years is exhausting and I felt burnt out. So I consciously took some time, not off, but I I wasn't working in the same way. And uh, that kind of extended a little bit longer than I was expecting. And I think it's because I needed it. So I've just kind of got back into a place where I'm getting, it sounds so cliche and so, I think it, to some people it sounds really arrogant and annoying, but I'm in a place where I'm getting inspired again and I'm feeling excited about things again. So I wasn't, I'm in a position where I have been asked to write another book, um, but I had no idea what that book was going to be at all. Um, and I was slightly concerned that I had no idea what I was going to write ever again. And then my partner and I were in New York a couple of weeks ago and we walk around the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. And to be completely frank, we were talking a lot about, you know, how the economy is in the country, how uh, house prices are changing and mortgage rates are going up and all these worrying things. And we were just talking about the idea that uh, what a book in that environment would be like. And the thing I've always said is that Baking actually seems to be something people turn to during times of economic downturn. Yep. And I 100% understand it because it's a, it, I think sometimes people misunderstand when I say it, but it's a cheap luxury. And I don't yes. mean that means it's actually cheap, cheap. But what I mean is it's cheaper than a lot of other things that we might have been doing. And so one of the examples I always give is, you know, if you are a parent and you're on the school holidays, and you have to entertain children, you know, going to a theme park, for example, is so expensive or, you know, but baking something really simple at home, uh, you know, can be a lot cheaper than that. And is also incredibly entertaining. And then you get something delicious at the end of it. So it's not surprising to me that people turn to baking in these moments. So it just got me thinking about what a book now would look like. And I did come up with an idea, which obviously I can't say. (laughs) Um, And I think it's one that I, like and could write a really good book on and isn't you know um baking for a pound or you know it's more of a I I don't like books that too I don't know I'm not describing it very well but I don't like books that feel throwaway no I I know I feel like I know what you mean yeah I need I need to write a book that feels like it's quality and isn't just here for a moment, but could theoretically, you know, be used for many years to come. So I do have an idea. Um, so ho- when I get home, I need to write it up and pitch it. Um, but hopefully at some point there will be another book, but I'm not necessarily in a rush, but we will see. You never know, my publisher might say, get it done. So we'll see. I think we're all happy to hear that. So that's yes. good news. Good. Ed, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. I know you're very busy and going through two right now. So I really thank you. And I hope you have a really great time in San Francisco. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to get there tomorrow. But thank you so much for having me. Okay. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks very much. 
That was my conversation with Ed Kimber, whose book Small Batch Bakes is out now. As soon as tomorrow, I'm going to be also talking with Tara Teaspoon, whose book Delicious Gatherings, Recipes to Celebrate Together is out in stores and can be purchased through all major retail outlets. If you follow my podcast and enjoy it, I'm on Buy Me a Coffee. If you like my work, you can buy me a coffee and share your thoughts. The link is in the bio. Help us promote this podcast and share this episode with a friend. You can share on social media and tag us at Well Librarian. Follow the Well Season Librarian podcast on Spotify and get notified when new episodes are released. You can subscribe to the podcast newsletter and get updates on all my articles and more at Substack. Our podcast theme song, Talk About Love, is sung by the band Kitty Cat Fan Club. Their label, Asian Man Records, is given permission for its use. You can check them out and other bands and get the album at Asian Man Records website, AsianManRecords.com. Hope you all have a really great week and keep on cooking. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.